You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back, Hamish Hodder. Now that's my new way of introducing the podcast. Welcome back, Hamish Hodder. How are you going? Because I remember I commented on the alliteration. How are you doing down in Melbourne? Yeah, we're doing okay. We're uh, still in lockdown. Lockdown so. city. Yeah. We, uh, we, I, I think we ticked over 200 days in lockdown since the start of the pandemic. So, big milestone. Congratulations. That, uh, yeah, thank, thank you. <laughs> Expecting my mail, my uh, my medal in the mail any any day now. So. <laughs> well, after all of this time where I've been up on my high horse saying Canberra's mm. not gone into any lockdowns, boom! Guess what happens? I pushed it one step too far, and now we're adding like I don't know twenty COVID cases a day now. So we're in lockdown, and on this podcast today we have our good friend Tom from Investing with Tom, and he's also in lockdown. How are you doing over there, Tom? Yeah, well, good considering the circumstances. I think New Zealand's been pretty much the same as Canberra, kind of talking crap to all the other areas of Australia, and now we're <laughs> back in lockdown as well. So, um, yeah. here we are. Sounds about right. Sounds about right. So, how many COVID cases are, are, are you guys having over there? And is the, the whole country's in lockdown or? Yeah, whole country's in lockdown. Um, right. We went into lockdown just with one case in, in Auckland. Um, I mm. think we're... We're a couple of days into it now recording this, and I think we're up to 10 or 15 cases, something like that. A day or total? Uh, that is total over like two or three days. All right. Okay. So, you you guys are still doing better than even Canberra. So, <laughs> actually, that's one thing. New Zealand has hand. It seems like New Zealand has handled the COVID crisis pretty well. I mean, Australia was doing pretty well. Um, but yeah, New Zealand's just been, I don't know, put the walls up, you know, nice mm. ocean around, 6 million people, just one case, <laughs> lock it down. They seem to have managed it pretty well. But uh, anyway, welcome back to the COVID podcast, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Always have to um, give an update about what's going on in COVID. Oh, this week we uh, we, we had one new restriction, by the way. We're, we now have yeah. a curfew. So you have a curfew. Fun. Yeah. We have a, an 8 p.m. curfew. So you have to get inside or else they, they kick you inside. <laughs> they don't do that. But. <laughs> they give you a fine probably. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That'd be so bizarre. I haven't, I haven't had a curfew yet, but uh, mm. probably only a matter of time. We'll see how we go. Um, anyway, talking about investing, which is what we're all here for. Um, it's, it's a big Big week this week because we get all the 13F filings. Well, all of the all the 13F filings from the really big investors, right? Because, mm. you know, if, if they're going to shift the market with what they have in their 13F, then they're going to report it as late as possible. So, all the big, big name investors, they push their 13Fs as late as possible. And that was, what, the 16th or the, the 16th, 17th or something. Mm. And uh, it's now past that date. So, we've got a lot to talk about. So... Um, this should be a pretty jam-packed podcast and it'll be good to uh, ask a few questions at Tom as well. So, let's get stuck into it, eh? Mm, for sure. Today's episode is sponsored by ShareSite, which is an application that you can use to track the performance of your stock portfolio. So, basically, it will allow you to bring in all of your trades from your broker either automatically or manually 
and it will track all of the different types of gains. So capital gains, dividends, if you have dividend reinvestment plans, it will do all of those calculations for you. Uh, currency gains, if you're buying shares internationally or you just hold foreign currencies, and then you can also use it for when it comes to tax time. So ShareSite generates up to 10 different reports, or I think it's actually 12 reports now um, that can be used to track your performance as well as at tax time to work out things such as capital gains, dividend income, and more. At the moment, you can try ShareSite for free by heading over to sharesite.com forward slash young investors. That's site spelled S-I-G-H-T, sharesite.com forward slash young investors. So use that link, sign up to a free plan and track up to 10 holdings for as long as you want. Or you can use that link to get four months off a yearly subscription if you sign up to a more premium plan for premium uh, features. And uh, once again, thanks to everyone who has used that link and is supporting the podcast. Indeed. Thank you very much. All right, team, let's let's get stuck into it. Tom, I'm interested. So, me and Hamish, we always talk about 13Fs and how we use them, um, who we follow. I'm interested, who, who do you follow? Who do you like to look at when it comes to 13F filings? And, and how do you typically use the information within yeah, I think 13Fs are great. I'm a big fan of them. So, I mean, I, I don't think I follow a lot of people who you guys wouldn't be following. So, obviously, Warren Buffett. Right. Um, I follow Charlie Munger sort of through the Daily Journal Corporation. Um, those would probably be the big two. Uh, then also, Manish Baraya, Guy Spear. Phil Town doesn't file a 13F per se, but there are some SEC filings out that allow us to kind of see what he's up to. Um, and then each quarter, I also try and sort of find one or two new ones, which are sort of interesting. So, um, you know, okay. the, the Seth Klarman's or Michael Burry's of the world, or um, this quarter, I actually stumbled across Nick Sleep's 13F and I didn't even realize he filed a 13F. So uh, that was a nice find as well. Yeah. It's, tell tell me more about Nick Sleep, because to be honest, I need to do more research on him. And I just haven't so far, because I've heard in a lot of Monish Pabrai interviews recently, he keeps bringing up Nick Sleep and this idea of long-term compounders and how he's been changing his strategy. Um, how did you come across Nick Sleep and kind of who is he? And I understand Hamish was saying he's got um, a lot of Buffett-style shareholder letters that are, are kind of got good information. I'm interested if you if you know much about him and his backstory, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah, I basically came across Nick Sleep the same way. So Nick Sleep is an investor out of the UK. He ran he ran a fund called Nomad from uh, the early 2000s till I think 2014. And Nick and his partner, Zach, are a chapter in a book that's just come out recently, Richer, Wiser, Happier, which Monish Pabrai was actually chapter one of, I think. So um, oh, okay, yeah. yeah, pretty interesting story. They're, they're really hard to find info on. And in that book, um, William Green, who's the author, actually said that, you know, Monish Pabrai was telling me about this guy called Nick Sleep and said, it'd be great if you could interview Nick Sleep, but he'll never talk to you. He's very private. And somehow he managed to kind of talk him into it, which, which was was great but as far as investment kind of his investment record and style and all that sort of thing it's it's very impressive over that 14 year roughly time period of his fund i think they did 21 percent a year they started investing like very what i'd probably describe as deep value style so right. you know to the point where he him and his partner were going to zimbabwe and buying cement companies during hyperinflation at 10 percent <laughs> of replacement cost or something insane <laughs> so he transitioned from that to um yeah basically buying these long-term compounders and it got to the point where his entire fund more or less was basically invested in amazon costco and Berkshire hathaway and you know nick sleep eventually got to the point where he's writing these letters 
letters to his, his investors, which are great if anyone has a chance to, to read those. I'm only a couple of years in, but those are really good. And he was sort of like writing these letters and updating his investors and saying, well, we haven't really done anything this year. We still own Amazon, Costco and Birch Hathaway, and we think that's great value add. And um, <laughs> and at a certain point, um, actually, some of the UK regulators were concerned about how concentrated the Nomad, you know, funds portfolio was. And by that point, you know, they'd made more money than they could ever imagine. So they basically just decided to wrap up the fund and say, here's your money back. Just go invest in these three stocks. That's all we were going to do anyway. <laughs> Did the same thing personally. <laughs> and I don't know, he, he's, he bought Amazon at like, I, I forget exactly. It's, I think something like $30 per share. He bought his first Amazon Amazon shares in that ballpark. Whoa. And he was in Costco, mm. I think, in two 2002 or three, somewhere in that range as well. As well, so just absolute home runs by sitting on his backside, more or less. <laughs> yeah, he's an insane investor, and I think the I completely agree. The Nomad letters to read, I think, are up there probably with Berkshire's letters in terms of the value you can get out of those letters. I mean, even just one particular thing that he spoke about a lot, which was like how he valued Costco. The level of detail that he goes into in explaining why he invested in Costco is something I've never seen an investor do. Even Buffett doesn't go to the level of detail. Like he basically explained his entire thesis on Costco, um, starting with how they were doing very well in, I think it was Washington state and that his valuation was basically extrapolating that success based on population density and the number of warehouses they had across the US. Like he was very detailed in explaining this is how they can get to this revenue number or, or this is why they will grow it. I think it was like 12 or 13% long term for 10, 15 years was his long projection. So um, really, really valuable. I think if you're really into valuation and, under- and understanding how you should be thinking about um, projecting businesses forward. So really, really right. interesting guy. And so, so he had this fund... And he essentially held three stocks. He was getting a little bit more heat because regulators were like, wow, this is concentrated. So, he shuts it down. First of all, he shuts it down, says to everybody, look, just do invest in these three stocks yourself. How many fund managers would actually do that? They'd be like, no, 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 trust me. You need to keep your money invested with us and they take their percentage. And <laughs> or is he just like, look, we're just going to shut the fund. You guys just invest in these stocks your own and you'll do fine. <laughs> but he's, but Nick Sleep, so he's- but he's still publishing 13F filings. Is that right? So he's he's done something in the in the meantime. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like I um, I just assumed that you know the 13F days for Nick Sleeper are kind of gone since he's wrapped up the fund. But um, I just kind of stumbled stumbled across um, a tweet the other day as I was kind of scrolling through Twitter, and someone said, "Oh yeah, Nick Sleep hasn't done much again as per usual." Look at his latest thirteen F, and I was like, "What? What? what? <laughs> there's there's something there." <laughs> and yeah, turns out um, turns out he runs a he runs a charity with you know over the hundred million dollar threshold for thirteen F filings. So um, yeah, that was really interesting find just in the last week or so for me. So and in his thirteen F, does he still just hold? Amazon, yeah. Costco. What was it, Berkshire? Yeah, I was going to say, I'll give you three guesses as to what's in there. It's, yeah, it's still Amazon, <laughs> Costco, and Berkshire. <laughs> so, literally, he started a charity and he's still holding the same stocks. It's, it's nothing more elaborate than that. Yeah, and and in the in the book um, that I was just talking about earlier, Rich Wise Happier, um, the, it tells the story. So, Nick Sleep wrapped up the fund in, I think it was 2014. I think the interviews for the book were done in 20... Well, this particular kind of part of the story is like 2018, 2019. At that point... 
Amazon was something like 70% of his net worth. And he was kind of like, okay, maybe this is getting a little much. And I think he sold half of it personally <laughs> in 2018 and wow. bought, I think he bought into a UK company called ASOS, which um, I know, Hamish, we were talking about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you've had a chance to look into that yet. Yeah, I've been, I've been looking into ASOS a little bit, not since we spoke, but prior to that, I had looked into them a little bit because, I mean, my initial impression was, well, if the other businesses he's invested into, and this is also a retail business online, but you know, very, I mean, I guess Amazon is also an online retailer, but um, it was a very similar business to some of his other major investments. So I was wondering, does this business have this scaled economies, shared competitive advantage, which is this kind of business characteristic, bus- the way that a business model really that Nick Sleep was very good at identifying in, in Costco and Amazon. So I was kind of coming at it from that perspective, like, can I kind of see a, a similar pattern in this business to, to Amazon and Costco? And um, I, could, I could see something to some extent. I, don't, I, don't, I certainly don't think I've, I've finished doing my analysis on ASOS, but I mean, certainly you can see that over time, they've done things like reduce the cost, uh, reduce the price per unit on their site over time. And um, that's somewhat a characteristic of businesses that are returning um, some of the scale efficiencies to customers. But um, yeah, I'm not too sure about that one just yet. It's I think it's about twice as expensive as it was when Nick Sleep probably invested a significant amount into it. And uh, the business is significantly larger than it was then, but um, it's significantly more expensive as well. So um, yeah, we'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to keep going on, on that one. But we don't get, I think we were talking about this just before the podcast, we don't get to see his ASOS investment publicly right we we don't kind of we we don't have any data on that over time um yeah not that i know of i mean the the 13fs are obviously just just us businesses and asos is in the uk but there there are other filings from different countries like um if people buy five percent of a japanese company for example we see it and that's how we found out about buffett and berkshire buying those japanese trading companies a year back or whenever that was so um Mm. i think we might see it if he bought enough of the shares outstanding like a big enough percentage of the company but that hasn't been triggered uh, as far as i can tell right okay it's a super interesting buy for him because he clearly sees similarities and it's kind of in his circle of competence and in his zone of similar businesses to what he's done in the past it's interesting though because you think about a Costco Costco works because of that scaled economies thing where you know as as you get bigger and you touch more people and you can bring the cost down and you know pass those savings on and it makes you even more popular I don't know I, I feel and I haven't looked into this but this is kind of like my thought is that would would that specifically work for fashion because so much of the the revenue that the amount that you charge for an a garment is in the brand you know it's like it's kind of like luxury car sales mm. it's like a ferrari could if they wanted to lower the price of a ferrari but there's something about the fact that it costs a million dollars i mean there's i mean, do you see what i'm saying it's like if you're offering garments you know that you perceive to be you know high quality and and brand and designer brand or whatever it is 
you know, you, you want to. I'd almost be hesitant to lower prices to a point where you know you don't end up feeling like a Target or a Kmart. <laughs> you said, <laughs> you know, you've passed on all these savings, and now this really expensive-looking designer dress you're selling it for like ten bucks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that- I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that has the potential to almost like backfire. Same with like cosmetic brands. You know, if you start lowering your price a lot, then it's just like, oh, is this, this is just the cheap brand of makeup. You know. Yeah, I mean, th- there may be some truth to that, but I mean, they are wholesale buying massive global brands. So, I mean, if they are able to buy them in higher quantity, then there could be some room for them to to be able to sell them on um, at a lower price. But I mean, there's also other ways that they can go about um, sharing efficiencies with customers. So, things like um, reducing the, the cost of shipping and reducing the time on shipping is something that Amazon has obsessively focused on, right? That doesn't come through right. on the price, but... Um, um, if you have Amazon Prime in the US, I mean, in a lot of places, you can do same day delivery. Um, and that's a massive uh, improvement in customer experience. And uh, Amazon is obsessed with lowering prices as well. But that's kind of another way that they can go about it. Another thing that ASOS does and a lot and Costco really does this as well is that they do really good returns. So in ASOS's case, because they're an online retailer, they actually eat the cost of um, the return shipping. So basically it, it encourages this habit of buying where you're happy, you're, you're completely comfortable buying things, even if you haven't tried them on their shoes or their clothes mm. that you haven't tried on. And you end up getting this culture around online shopping that is instead of you just buy what you want, you buy 10 items, you try them all on and you send back three. Um, or you like right. them all and if the product is really good relative to the price you paid, you're just going to end up keeping them. And it's a way for them to generate massive volume, massive frequency in purchases while just basically having less profit margin because they just eat the cost of the returns that will inevitably come back. But Right. Okay. That that makes more sense. And I guess I, I didn't realize that they're just distributing other people's brands. So, I guess my argument doesn't probably hold up they, in that they, sense. If they, were, if they had their own brand, it, I thought they were like their own <laughs> brand or something. They, they no. do. They do have their own brand. So, to some extent oh, okay. that does, that, that could certainly apply. Um, right. But the okay. vast majority of products they sell on ASOS are from, from global brands. Yeah, which makes sense. So in that case, then the scaled economies model works really well because then it's, yeah. then it's like, oh my gosh, I can get this this designer clothing that costs X amount where else, but I can get it cheaper on ASOS. Right. I see. Mm. I see. Very interesting. Very interesting. Tom, do you have any other insights on ASOS? I really, as you can tell, <laughs> don't really know much about it. Or, or should we move on to our next topic? I probably know about the same amount as you, uh, Brandon. So. I think we should move on. <laughs> All right. No worries. Well, let's keep talking. Do you guys want to keep talking 13Fs? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Who, who else have right. we got? Give us some, uh, well, let's give start, some big ones. Yeah. Let's start with the big daddy. The big, the big boy himself. <laughs> the buff dog. Big daddy Buffett. The buff dog. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, Honestly- I'll run. I'll run us through the the 13F for Warren Buffett. I wish it was a little bit more interesting this quarter. I mean, we've had some we've had some good quarters in the past from Buffett. There was obviously the quarter where he sold out of all the airlines. There was a quarter where he bought like eight or ten different business, like new buyers, mm. and that was really interesting. But this quarter is just. He just hasn't done much. Interestingly, he's sitting on about 140, 140 something billion dollars of cash. Um, the share portfolio is up to a, a, a value of about 300. Uh, what was it? Oh, I've got it written down. Uh, 300 and something billion. 
$308 billion. So, he's sitting in like 30% cash at the moment, which he that's been the case over the last little while. Um, he's just obviously struggling to sink a lot of that money that he wants to sink into the market because the stock prices around the board, across the board are so high. Um, so, overall with Buffett, there was one new buy, which was uh, called Organon, but I figured out that that was just a, a spin-off from Merck and then uh, shareholders uh, uh, of Organon, they got, uh, sorry, they, yeah, shareholders of Merck got one-tenth of an Organon share for every Merck share. So, I think that's just um, because he's a shareholder in Merck. So, that's boring. Um, <laughs> in terms of additions, the only reasonable addition was a 21% increase to his Kroger position. And Hamish, you, have you looked into Kroger in the past? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't fancy them too much, um, to be honest. I um, it was a little while ago, so I'm, I'm gonna pull up the summary of my analysis just so that I can refresh <laughs> yeah. my mind. But um, I think they. I mean, I I like looking at companies that have really low levels of debt, if not nothing. And I think Krogo had um, quite a significant amount of long term debt. So for that, it was kind of just an immediate, not super interested. Um, and they're a pretty slow grower at this point. They're growing at four or five percent. Um, in 2019, they grew at 0.3%. So, they're very much just a slow burn business. And um, I mean, maybe that's that's what Buffett is looking for. They pay a significant dividend, but um, I'm kind of looking for businesses that might be on the cusp of have grown well in the past with a proven track record and are on the cusp of producing significant growth in the future. And I, I think Kroger's probably not that business um, considering their current position in the US. Right. Okay. So, he added 21% to Kroger and uh, he also added to RH and Aon, but uh, really nothing significant there. In terms of what he reduced in, he reduced in the pharmaceuticals. So, he actually sold half of his Merck position um, and then only sold 15% in Bristol-Myers-Squibb and 10% in AbbVie. Do you guys know, I'm like, honestly, I can't really talk too much. I know basically nothing about pharmaceuticals. Uh, but I was surprised that he bought four pharmaceuticals in Q3 2020. He bought Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb, AbbVie and Pfizer. And he bought them all at the same time. So, it's like, okay, does he just want, uh, is he trying to do some sort of coronavirus vaccine <laughs> play or something random? Um, but that theory got thrown out the window because then in the next quarter, he ditched Pfizer um, and he's been selling down now 50% in Merck and selling down 15% Bristol-Myers Squibb, 10% in Advi. So, I don't really know what the go is here. I guess Berkshire, he just wanted Berkshire to have some broad exposure to pharmaceuticals and now maybe as time has gone on, he's decided, yeah, I like these ones a little bit more than those ones. Um, but honestly, I don't, I don't really have a great insight as to what he's trying to do here. Do you guys have any any ideas? Well, when it when it first popped up, um, it actually caught my attention a little bit. I mean, it caught everyone's attention. It was kind of in the news everywhere. But one, the reason it caught my attention is because a year or two back, I, I went basically back to the, I think it's mid-90s, something like that. You can go back and watch all the old Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings, like the shareholder meetings and go through all the Q&As and stuff. And I, I recalled a, a question and a comment that, um, or a question Buffett got in a comment he made um, kind of in response to it about the pharmaceuticals. And I think this was in the late 90s and he said you know in the early 90s all the pharmaceuticals kind of looked relatively cheap but he kind of didn't know enough about each company to uh, you know to make a big bet on one of them and he was sort of saying maybe I should have just done a basket bet I, I probably would have done that if 
I was back in that situation again. And I, so I was like, oh, you know, 20 years later, now he gets the Makes chance sense. to do it. And um, I, I thought that's kind of what he might be doing. Maybe he just thought the sector was kind of cheap generally, but to see him back out of it relatively quickly is, is kind of strange. I, don't, I really don't know what he's doing there, to be honest. Yeah. And I think all four of those were fairly low PE. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't look into the P's too much, but I mean, just generally, they didn't look like they were super expensive. I mean, not that Buffer would ever buy anything that's super expensive, but uh, that that makes more sense. Um, because that is exactly what it did look like. It looked like at the time, you know, you buy four pharmaceutical companies that all kind of do similar stuff and you buy them all at the same time. Um, definitely not a vaccine play because he just sold Pfizer uh, as soon as he bought it pretty much. But yeah, interesting. Definitely Berkshire would then want the diversified exposure to pharmaceuticals. But uh, yeah, I don't really get why he's halving Merck. Um I guess one thing that we might expect from someone like Warren Buffett is that in the next 13F, we might see him continue to reduce Merck because mm. maybe he just wants to get rid of it. But honestly, I have no idea. Uh, Hamish, any insights on that? No, not really. I, it's really hard to uh, to assess why you think someone's doing a move if you have no idea about the industry. And yeah. I think pharmaceuticals <laughs> is just an area I know like nothing. Like I couldn't even give you a shred of info on, on the pharmaceutical <laughs> right, market. Whereas at least there would be, might be like retail businesses that I haven't looked into, but I might understand the context of what's going on in the industry or something like that. That is certainly not true for me with uh, pharmaceuticals. So, <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on out of that then. So uh, on top of the pharmaceuticals, he also reduced uh, 10% in general Motors. Uh, now he he's continuing to sell down this position, but he is selling it slowly. He sold ten percent of his position in Q4 2020, then eight percent in Q1 2021, and ten percent in now Q2. So it's slipped in this quarter. It slipped from his tenth largest holding to his twelfth largest holding. Um, yeah, to, to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of General Motors as a business. I think it's a fairly weak business. I'm surprised that Warren Buffett holds it. To be honest. Um, and their metrics have kind of just been drifting slowly down over the past like five years or so. Um, so I don't know if again, if you guys have anything, why why Buffett is selling slowly? Is he does he want to still hold it? Does he still still see value in it in the long term? Or because it seems weird that he's kind of just consistently selling down roughly ten percent quarter after quarter. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I had a I had an investment in Fair Chrysler, which is now merged with another business to become a company called Stellantis. So I I know this industry reasonably well, and Buffett was kind Please of Please enlighten me. <laughs> he, he was he was he was sort of slowly buying it for a long time as well, like for probably two or three years. Right. Every quarter, he was just kind of chipping away at it a little bit. And I mean, auto businesses suck generally; like they are hugely <laughs> yeah. capital intensive. You've got like unionized workforces. Is if your competitor, you know, it's like one of those industries where your dumbest competitor sets the price to a large extent, and you have like a lot of what you could op- what you'd call operating leverage. So, like, you know, in good times you make a small, nice little profit margin, but in bad times you can lose like five years of earnings in three <laughs> months. You know, so it's a it's a rough business, and yeah, I, I see the stock has about doubled in the last year or so. So maybe he's just capturing some of that gain, but hard to say. Right. Okay. 
Yeah. Very difficult business to assess long term, I think, because I mean, if, if any business goes through p- cyclical periods where they're losing a ton of money, there's just to me, there's just so much uncertainty associated with that. Um, most of these businesses that are cyclical carry debt because they, they require it, a very capital intensive business. And um, it's very difficult to assess what economic short term economic conditions are going to look like and and auto businesses are notorious for for going bankrupt during weak economic activity so mm. not a not a not a great business i also don't yeah i mean i'm i'm not really sure about trimming as well in terms of what buffett is doing there at certain times he said that he does trim positions at other times he said that he doesn't trim positions that if he if it doesn't meet his principles he'll just sell out of it completely immediately so Mm. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> and it's and it's not yeah. like he needs the cash to buy other stuff. Like he's got a pile no. of it sitting there. So yeah. who knows? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's actually one thing I was I was going to bring up is that just to finish this off quickly, um, the last thing I wanted to say is that he sold out of Axalta Coding Systems, Biogen and Liberty Global. But overall, you're right. He's got so much cash sitting around. Um He's, he hasn't really done too much in the quarter. And I think that kind of tells us that from this quarter, firstly, he's very comfortable with like the top five holdings because uh, he just, uh, you know, it's just not touching him. Mm-hmm. But it also shows me definitely that he is really struggling to find places to put his money because he said in the past he wants to. He wants to find whatever he said, the elephant-sized acquisition. He wants to he wants to get some of that money in. But, you know, the fact that he's not really sinking any money into new positions and he's not even sinking a substantial amount of money into increasing positions he's already got in businesses he already likes. To me, that just says that he is really struggling to find anything that would value add to Berkshire Hathaway at the current price that it is. Do you, do you think that's fair? Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that kind of statement as well. Well, the the biggest move Buffett made last quarter actually doesn't show up on a 13F. He he bought back, um, as far as I can tell, about what was that? He bought back about six billion dollars of his own stock. So that, that's what he's finding at the of moment, course. and that's about the extent of what he's finding. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I totally forgot about the share buybacks but yeah he bought a stack back of berkshire yeah um but yeah i don't know i i'm i'm interested to see like when honestly at this point i'm like man to see warren buffett sink a big chunk of money into the market that's not maybe a berkshire buyback we're gonna have to i feel like we're gonna have to see a pretty mighty sell-off or a pretty like decent sized recession for him to even get a sniff at anything that seems like it's decent value yeah well i mean given the size of of how much cash he needs to put to work. There's just such a limited options now for, for what investments he can make. And I think for a really long time, people have kind of used Buffett's cash percentage or position as an indication of what theirs should be. I just don't think that's true anymore. I think that, I mean, I don't know how many it was, but it was such a small number of businesses that he could invest, say, $50 billion, which would reflect like a 10% investment based on the size of Berkshire. I don't approximately that much, right? But there's there's only mm. a handful of businesses that are big enough to do that and not and not be buying 50% of the company <laughs> or 100% of the company. Um, whereas us as little fish, there's obviously way more businesses we can invest a, frac- a very small amount of money in. So there could very well be a lot of businesses that are undervalued right now, but Buffett just can't buy them given the way he wants to invest. Um, 
So yeah, yeah. there's that to, to keep in mind, I think as well, when we, we look at Buffett's cash position, it's, it's kind of normal to see that it's, it's at that size. It's very difficult to find undervalued businesses when there's only eight total businesses or 12 total businesses he can actually put money into. How's that for a first world problem though? <laughs> Sorry guys, I'm finding it so hard. I've got too much money. I don't, I just, you know, I try, I try to buy things, but it's just not impactful. I've just got too much. Yeah, cries <laughs> himself to sleep every night. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh my gosh. Steps down as CEO, investors outcry because he hasn't been deploying the hundreds of billions of dollars that he's made as investors over the past, <laughs> over the past, what, six, 60 years, man, that's crazy. Yeah, like almost 60 years. Wow, geez, it's a long time. Anyway, that's uh, that's Warren Buffett's 13F, the big daddy-o. Um, should we talk about Michael Burry? You guys interested in Michael Burry? Or should we talk mm. about Guy Spear? Do you want to talk about Guy Spear first, Tom? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I uh, I read Guy Spear's book a couple of years ago and since then I've been a pretty big Me fan too, of him. Yeah. So yeah, Guy Spear is the master of doing nothing, I would say. He's not quite a, he's not <laughs> quite he's not quite on Nick Sleep's level, but um, he's he's not too far away. So sits in Zurich and does nothing all day. Yeah, pretty much. I, <laughs> maybe does <laughs> meditates and does a bit of yoga or something, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I was interested uh, to see that, um, yeah, to see that Guy Spear made three changes to the portfolio this quarter. So um, there was one stock he sold out of completely, uh, which was Wells Fargo, previously 3.1% of the portfolio and sold 100% of it. Um and then he added two mm. stocks. So he had he he joined the long list of investors now in Alibaba. He Baba. put where is it about five percent of the portfolio into Alibaba. Um, and the one that probably surprised me the most was actually about a two percent bet on the Daily Journal Corporation, which is um, obviously Charlie Munger's, uh, or where, where we can see a thirteen F from a portfolio that Charlie Munger manages as well. Mm. Interesting. This, this we've got to talk about Alibaba, I guess, because this has just been yes, no, just the, kidding. The absolute. I mean, we we already have been talking about it over the past few podcasts. Yeah, um, we'll talk. You, Hamish, you were talking about it with when you you were talking about Chinese uh, regulation mm. um, mm-hmm. of big tech, but my gosh, Alibaba is just the flavor of the month. It, well, the flavor of the last year or so in terms of value investors, or maybe the last three or six months. Um, so who we got now? We got Charlie Munger, we got Monish Prabhai, Guy Spear. Uh, actually, Tom, myself, and Hamish was it on air or off air? I can't remember. Last week we were discussing what percentage chance because we hadn't got Buffett's thirteen F yet. We we're like, what's the chances that Buffett's bought Alibaba? <laughs> <laughs> and I think we we both said probably pretty unlikely, but I think we both mm. gave it like a twenty twenty ish percent chance. Yeah. And I think because we said, well, you know, Charlie Munger's bought into it. I mean, they're pretty good buds. Um, so, I mean, from, from your perspective, I understand you've, you've done a fair bit of research so far on Alibaba, um, and, uh, you've obviously been following the super investors that have sunk money into Alibaba. Um, like why, why, why is it the flavor of the, of the last couple of months? Is it because there's no other opportunities? Is it a really good business? 
Um, what, what do you think's drawing them to the stock? Yeah, I think um, seeing Charlie Munger go into it in the Daily Journal Corporation because he was sort of the first one. I think there's sort of a flood of super investors have kind of followed that. Um, and yeah, I mean, upon doing a bit of digging, it, it is a really good business. Like it's grown it's, it's grown revenue at something like 50% a year compounded for the last decade. Um, it's got a whole suite of e-commerce businesses in China um, and actually in Southeast Asia and some other places as well. It's got... Um, um, Ant Financial, which owns Alipay, which is like, I think their user number basically matches the number of people in China that have a connection to the internet. So you get one third ownership stake in that as well. Um, wow. And then you've got this um, relatively small in the grand scheme of Alibaba at the moment, but you've got a very fast growing cloud business, again, growing at like 50% a year or something. So you can, you get all of that and then you sort of run some discounted cash flows or look at some, you know, basic valuation metrics on Alibaba and relative to their growth. And of course, they're not going to grow at 50% a year forever because they're at a huge, but even if they can grow at 10 or 15% a year, maybe like by my maths, it looks pretty cheap. That's not a stock tip or anything, but that's kind of where I've arrived. I guess the, the giant red flag hovering over it and the reason it's down so much recently is just um, political risk basically. And like, you know, is Alibaba going to get delisted? Um, you know, technically, if you buy Barber on the New York Stock Exchange, you're buying into an entity in the Cayman Islands. So do you even actually own Alibaba? Like that that's not mm. a new thing, but it kind of has been has been brought into the limelight a lot more recently. So um, there's kind of lots of red flags, I guess, or lots of things kind of hovering over Alibaba, which scares many people away. But I guess you've got the value investors who have been listening to Buffett say, uh, you know, buy fear and sell greed for the last 50 years. And maybe they think this is their opportunity. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting one. Hamish, do you have any any thoughts on Alibaba? Um, not really in your zone. I mean, yeah, not really. I mean, if you just at a very basic level, look at its valuation, you can see that. I mean, given if it grows at, you know, mid mid teens, that it will probably do extremely well for you. Um, but then the question is, you know, can I, do I understand the business well enough to know whether mid teens is, is reasonable? And beyond that, are there other uncertainties such as government intervention that just might completely shatter that ability to grow? Um, and for me, there's just so many question marks. So yeah, fair. it's not, I've, I've said this before and I, I have to say it every time I talk about uh, a business that I don't want to invest in. Um, You're shorting it doesn't it, mean Hamish. I think <laughs> I'm not shorting it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Off air, Tom. Um, okay. Not on air. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but, we have our on air uh, opinions and our <laughs> off air opinion. <laughs> Jeez, that would be, that would be so dodgy. That would be there probably are people that run podcasts <laughs> like that though, to be honest. Um, but no, it is interesting. The And to be honest, this is probably not the right way to think about it. But the thing that kind of gives me a little bit of comfort about the whole- uh, is, a, is It's an ADR, the whole Cayman Islands way of investing through into Alibaba. The only thing that gives me a little bit of comfort there is that that's the way that all of the big US value investors are investing in it, right? They are buying Baba, the ADR. Is that right, Tom? 
Um, I mean, that's all we can see. So, I mean, there's a chance they're also buying it on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange that, and we wouldn't see that. True, Who knows? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, there's a long list of people buying the US-listed version of Alibaba. That's for sure. Mm, right. They, okay. They might be buying the US-listed version, shorting the US-listed version for the same amount. We can't see the shorts and then buying it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. This is, a, <laughs> this is elaborate. This is elaborate. They've all figured it out. It's all a ploy. They've together. <laughs> and then they're like, hey, so Charlie's going to start us, right? So, Charlie, you make your invest. Then then Monish is like, then I'll come in second. <laughs> Guys, like, I'll come in third. We're going to pump the hell out of this stock. And then just when all of our value buddies are on board, we're out. The, great, the greatest pump and dump scheme of all time. <laughs> well, the pump's oh not God. working very well from what I could see. So, it's not, it's no, not playing it's not. out. <laughs> It's going south that, and it just keeps going south. Yeah. But I guess that'll, assuming that they they haven't maxed out their positions, I imagine all of these investors are going to continue continue to buy in. Um, they've already started and it's just getting a better deal. So I think the next 13F will be telling, you know, especially now that I think it's dropped, what, down to the 170 range, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Well, yeah, 172. And when Charlie started buying, I think it was what in the low 200s? I think so, about 220s, 230 maybe. Yeah. Right. But it's getting cheaper and cheaper. So I, I would be interested to see what kind of buy numbers are on Alibaba in the Q3 13Fs. Yeah. That will be, that'll be very interesting. Well, well, even this quarter, we saw because Monish Prabhai entered into Alibaba in the previous quarter, not the last one. In this quarter, we saw, I think he increased his position by 50%, um, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. So, um, that's already kind of an example of what you're talking about, where you've already seen one big investor upping their investment as it's come down. So, yeah, we may continue to see that from uh, from a few others going into the next quarter. Such a long time to wait three months. Wish they had to do it every <laughs> every month <day>. or something. <laughs> live, just a live, just a live <laughs> counter. What? Kathy <laughs> Wood. Bought. Well, that's isn't what that, it is. Isn't that a Kathy Wood move? To, What's that? To publish your trades every day. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's, Does she do that? Yeah. Interesting. Oh, interesting right. approach. <laughs> I d- I did not did not know that. There you go. Um, and for those that want to learn more about Alibaba as a company, Tom, what's what's the book that you read? And do you want to maybe take us through, because I'm yet to read it, but I really do want to read it, um, what, what that book was and, and maybe what are some of the takeaways that you got out of the book? Uh, yeah, sure. So, that book uh, you're referring to is called, what is it called? Uh, Alibaba, The House That Jack Mail Built. I think it's by Duncan Clark from memory. So, Duncan Clark's former investment banker has lived in China for about 20 years. And um, it's actually funny, I was listening to Duncan Clark give a talk as part of his book tour when it first came out. And he was actually offered options, you know, in Alibaba as part of his investment banking work in like 1999 and turned them down. And he's like, man, these would have been worth, I forget the number, but it was like $50 million or something. And he's like, so I I hope the book sells very well to make up for that. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's a really good book. It kind of goes through the story of Alibaba. Well, Jack Ma initially actually in kind of his upbringing and a bit of his early business failures actually um, and kind of like discovering the internet and going through that kind of part of his life. And then, yeah, it goes into the business of Alibaba, talks through something they call the Iron Triangle, which is 
what I would describe as their moat. So it's kind of this combination of their e-commerce businesses, uh, their logistics advantages, and then uh, basically Alipay, their kind of financial arm, all sort of working in harmony to allow them to you know grow as well as they have grown. Um, so that was one of the key takeaways, I'd say. Um, definitely learned a lot about Jack Ma and also just learned about a lot of the kind of stupidity that, <laughs> that um, people that are not living in China but want to get Chinese exposure like for example there's this um, there's a really good story in that book of eBay trying to come into China and just completely screwing it up like you would not believe Um, and it just goes to show I think the fact that like all the American e-commerce businesses basically have no chance in China was my takeaway from that like Mm -hmm. I mean uh, one of one of Alibaba's major e-commerce platforms is called Tmall and like Amazon have a store on Tmall that's kind of the point we're at with Amazon trying to compete in China so um, right yeah Yeah. really good book definitely recommend it the same thing actually rings true with Alipay and their payments business because Visa and MasterCard are they dominate everywhere, but they're actually banned in China. Um, all payment process, all payments are processed by the by a, a government-run body in China. Um, so what people mm. in China have done as a result of that is they use things like Alipay, which basically operates as a digital wallet service. Um, they're not actually processing or facilitating transactions between banks. Um, but that's like another example of of where their payments business is completely dominant in China. And Visa and MasterCard actually cannot operate in China, um, which gives them a massive yep. advantage in, in that market. And then they can maybe use that advantage to, to, to spread it elsewhere as well. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's a big advantage, I guess, for business in, in China when the Chinese government's kind of like, no, 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 no. Every, everybody else stay out and we'll just keep bringing up the, you know, Chinese businesses within. I mean, it is an advantage. It is an advantage. But yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, a company like eBay just doesn't, you know, comes into China and just flunks. I think, I, I don't know, this is just my theory, but I feel like when businesses try and expand, I mean, they start a lot of the companies we look at, they start in the US and then they get good traction in the US and they're like, oh, where's the next logical place? Oh, where there's also like a good economy and a heap of people, let's go to China. But I I just feel like uh, from what I have just, I guess, learned is that there's just a massive cultural difference between the US and China and just a lot of, you know, businesses which work well with the way of life in the United States, just don't sync up with the way life works in China. And maybe that's politically, maybe it's just like, yeah, cultural differences. But I don't know. I just feel like there's definitely and an example that I remember is is like um, watching a documentary on Disney theme parks when they opened... Oh, why was it? It was Disneyland in, was it Shanghai? Is there a Disneyland in Shanghai? I can't remember. There's one in Um, Hong Kong, I think. Hong Kong, yeah, maybe Hong Kong. Yeah, Hong Kong, I think that might be the case. Mm -hmm. But when they went there, um, they they had to be so careful with the way that they- Because they had this this approach, this is what Disneyland looks like Mm -hmm. in the US. Um, And then they were trying to take Disneyland to whether- I can't remember. I think let's just say it was Hong Kong. And they were like, hang on, does this actually work culturally- 
for, you know, where we are. So, they had to be very careful about bringing the elements of Disneyland, which made Disneyland so successful in the US, but also not doing it so much that it's just like, well, this is just some American thing that nobody actually <laughs> wants to, you know, wants to take part in. But anyway, that's like a little anecdote that just uh, popped into my brain. Um, but uh, I don't know, guys, should we, uh, do you think, feel like we should wrap up our 13F chat? Because we do actually have a lot of questions. I think, Hamish, did you put out the, you put out the, the request for if anybody had any questions to ask, well, to any of us, I guess, but we'll, mm. we'll chuck them to Tom because it's just easy. We can just ask him questions, kick our feet up and then, <laughs> Tom, you can just finish off the podcast for us, really. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, we have so many that you probably could and we still would run over time. So, thanks to everyone who's- uh, okay. Yeah, thanks everyone who, who um, asked questions. I only made the post- not that long ago and there's, there's a lot of questions here so um thanks everyone for, for who, who did ask questions um where should we where should we start in terms wherever of you like Hamish. um uh, here's a here's a question here's an interesting question um i would love to hear his uh thoughts about his upbringing and uh, relationship with money growing up thanks oh interesting I don't know if I've ever talked too much about this, but um, yeah, I grew up. Um, I grew up in a town called Matamata, which is sort of in the middle of the North Island of New Zealand. If anyone is familiar with that, grew up in town. When I was about twelve or thirteen, we actually moved onto a dairy farm and also moved to Northland, which, as you can probably guess, is the uppermost region of the North Island of New Zealand. Um, and yeah, grew up on a farm, which was good fun. Like got to ride motorbikes and learn to drive tractors when you're like thirteen and all that fun stuff. <laughs> that that was good fun. I actually went on to go to school in Auckland. So I went to a, a boarding school actually called Dilworth School in Auckland, which um, is probably a story for another day, but that was probably near the best thing that's ever happened to me. Like I got uh, every student that goes to that school is on a 100% scholarship for all your education and boarding and everything. So that was a great opportunity. Went on to then study a degree in agricultural science uh, down in the South Island of New Zealand. So sort of merged like the maths and science stuff that I kind of liked at school with farming, which I kind of grew up with. Um, and I've been working in the agricultural industry actually. So completely unrelated to investing for the last four or five years now. So that's kind of my upbringing, I guess, in terms of relationships with money. Um, I really don't know if I had anything particularly out of the ordinary with growing up with money. Like I'm not from a super wealthy family. I'm not from a super poor family, but um, yeah, I guess I saw like my parents constantly working very hard and that probably inspires a bit of worth work ethic from my end but maybe also a bit of inspiration to try and grow something outside of my day job so I don't have to work if I don't want to but um, I think that that's probably been yeah I don't know it's an interesting topic kind of talking about money growing up it's that that's kind of where I've got to with it though I think yeah mm. how'd you get specifically stuck into stock market investing was it just natural when you decided you wanted to try and compound money or mm -hmm. is it something you got taught about or yeah that was um this is going to sound like a really dumb story but it's literally how it happened so I'll tell it anyway so we love it I, um, I was so I was like a few months into my first job after you know leaving university and studying ag science and um I, I like jumped in my car I was walking back to my car one day or something and um after work and was just doing some basic maths on like what I get paid right now at my first job how much of that I'm saving and if I work from now until I'm 65 
like how much money will I have in the end? And the, the number was re- really <laughs> underwhelming. So I was like, there's some, like I'm reasonably good at maths, but I'm sure I'm missing something here. Like something's not adding up and kind of connected the dots that that was investing. So um, yeah, I guess at the time, I, I think I had a few thousand dollars saved up. So property wasn't an option and property is like the main investment vehicle for um, a lot of New Zealanders. I think the culture is probably pretty similar in Australia, but maybe even more extreme mm. in New Zealand where people are pretty much only care about property I would say um, so yeah. I wasn't in a position to do that and then kind of stumbled across the share market and then went down the rabbit hole of Warren Buffett then I think I found Pabri and Phil Town and the rest is history I don't know history is still playing out but that's kind of the, the rabbit, <laughs> hole I, rabbit hole I went down and, and found all the stuff mm. Interesting. We got a question here. How's Tom's house hunting going? Yeah, I don't know. Are you, are you looking for a house at the I moment? I'm looking for a house at the moment. Yeah, it's um, me too. It's three of us. Yeah, <laughs> all, all three. Well, of this us. is why prices keep there going go. up because everyone's looking for a house at the same time and none are out there. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's been interesting. Done done a few weekends, uh, open homes and all that. Now, I actually um, had a crack at bidding on one a couple of weeks ago, which uh, we didn't win, but that was a interesting experience yeah but nerve-wracking um so yeah um i don't know we i think it's one of those things you kind of just keep looking and there's a lot of competition out there at the moment um for a lot of homes um so yeah prices are high i kind of hope interest rates stay low if we do buy something yeah (laughs) but um yeah it's tough there's there's not a lot of new stuff kind of coming onto the market and prices seem to not really be slowing down um, anytime soon. So mm. I wanted to ask you that question specifically to see if if your situation is the same as what we've got here in Australia. And it sounds exactly uh, the same. Yeah, sounds yeah exactly I, the same. I don't know the exact stats in the in Australia, but I've looked a bit in the US and housing prices are up like everywhere pretty much. But New Zealand has yeah. the most extreme numbers I've seen. I think property prices were up something like 25% in the last 12 months. Um, yeah. So yeah, mm. pretty crazy leaps upward. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it it makes sense that housing prices are at all time highs. I mean, they're at all time accessibility on a monthly yeah. mortgage payment basis. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> pretty uh, straightforward mechanic, but it does make it difficult. Um, mm. Yeah. Particularly in certain markets, I think like Sydney and Melbourne, at least I know of that are just crazy, 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 mm. crazy. Yeah, and it's a, it's interesting because like um, I think it's the same in Australia, but New Zealand doesn't have these nice like thirty year fixed rate mortgages like you can get access to in in the US. So mm. it really is quite yeah. a big bet on interest rates staying low if you really pay up for one of these places. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think what well I think I've seen. Uh, a 10-year fixed product, but I think once you start getting out that long, I, I don't think it's a very like a very good deal anymore. But I think generally, and I'm no property expert, but I think generally in Australia, two, three or five-year fixed is generally what people mm. sign up mm-hmm. for. Uh, but yeah, that's what I was- Because I heard someone, I was listening to some property video and someone's like, let's imagine this 30-year fixed mortgage. And I was like, whoa, 30-year <laughs> fixed? It's like, what the- If Hang on. So, the interest rates at the moment uh, on, on various loans are like 2 3%. If I could fix- Two or three percent for thirty years, but then I was just like, "Yep, nope, they do that doesn't exist, <laughs> not here at least." And I, and even if you could fix for that long, I'm sure the interest rate wouldn't be quite that low. But 
Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Interesting. Let you, me, Hamish, have you found another question? Do you want to do I, one more do, or two I'll more? I'll just read the rest of that question first. Um, and how's uh, Brandon's Tesla, aka chick magnet going? <laughs> I thought I, I thought I got no. away unscathed. That's why I wanted to ask that question. So, <laughs> uh, the chick magnet. No, it's um, it, it's good. I mean, I, I really like it. It's this is the thing with electric cars. Yes, you do pay up. Yes, they are expensive. But since I actually bought it, ongoing costs. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's an expensive car. Granted, so insurance costs are a little bit higher. But in terms of maintenance, like haven't had to do anything. I actually just the other day for the first time, I had to do my first bit of maintenance. I had to fill up my window washer fluid. Wow. Yeah. Tragedy. <laughs> my car started making a weird noise, and I'm just hoping it'll go away. I don't know. Yeah, just kick it a couple of times. Yeah. Usually, I just like ignore it and then it'll go away in a few months. I think I heard so. a mechanic tell me that one time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Hey, all right. Is, is there another one, Hamish? Um, Should we do one or two more? God, I'm uh, I'm, I'm hunting here for, for a good question. Um, oh, there's plenty. All right. Here's one about um, something we are talking about with Nick Sleep before. Uh, Hamish and Tom, you've mentioned that you've been learning about Nick Sleep and the scaled economy's shared business model, um, which I'm also uh, learning about. The model seems to be very obvious for retailers and e-commerce like Amazon, Costco, and Walmart. Outside of retail, what other types of businesses or industries could partake in the scaled economy's shared business model? Um, that's a good question. Do you have any thoughts on that, Tom? Um, this is something I've been trying to figure out because um, I feel like if I can figure this out, I'll get very rich, but I haven't quite got the answer yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. I, I actually was kind of thinking about it with, this might sound like a bit of a strange one, but I was sort of thinking about it with commodities actually. Like, is there some low cost commodity producer that can just constantly undercut people? And sure, maybe your profits are lumpier than a Costco mm. or an Amazon, but maybe that's that's one um i know like people like phil town for example have had long-time investments in and out of businesses like cf industries which is a low-cost kind of producer of nitrogen fertilizer so i don't know i, I mm. haven't got any obvious ones that have come to mind but man uh investing with tom at gmail.com if anyone thinks of any <laughs> <laughs> point of money there, to, uh, there we go <laughs> yeah i guess that does that does make <clears throat> sense though commodities i mean at the end of the day i guess Technically, with commodities, you can be producing slightly different variations, but let's just say for, for shits and gigs that it's all the same thing. Like if you're a lithium miner, you're trying to mine lithium, right? So, if yeah, if there's something about your business, I mean, I guess they're all playing, um, you know, they're all competing with each other to sell the same stuff. So, you're right. If you can, if you have something about your extraction techniques or your, I don't know, your refining techniques or whatever that makes it lower cost than you know, the next the next guy along. I mean, for example, the only one that I can think of, which is not really a commodity in itself, but um, it just popped into my head, is Tesla um, with the new battery cell that they're making. And I guess the commodity in this sense, in my mind, is the battery cell. And for example, they are using these dry coat uh, electrode technologies or whatever, which means that they can eliminate these huge electrode drying ovens, which take just a humongous amount of energy and take up a whole bunch of space in these cell manufacturing plants. And in Tesla's new battery solution, they just don't need it. And that 
has a significant impact on the cost per kilowatt hour of, of battery that they can produce. So um, that's that's like one example. But yeah, that's uh, um, that's really interesting. And I hadn't thought about that. But now that you've said it, it really springs to mind. Yes, commodities is a very applicable one for the um, scaled economy. Well, model. yeah, I'm, mm. I'm just kind of thinking through it now. Like with CF Industries specifically, I think they have they have facilities in certain locations where they can get low cost natural gas. But I just wonder if they they struggle to make that model travel that's where maybe that idea right. falls over right. I, i'm not sure i'd have to look more into it but um yeah i'd mm. love to figure this question out mm. yeah mm. should we do sorry hamish you, no, you continue go on i had nothing more to say it's all good oh okay no worries i was just going to see if we could pick out one mm. one more one more question um let's see oh this is this will be an interesting one Ask Tom what his best and worst investments have been and specifically what he learned from them. Always like asking this question. You always learn it a, a bucket load. Yeah. Um, worst investment is Fiat Chrysler. That's the only stock I've ever had a locked in a permanent loss of capital on. Um, what I learned from that, I mentioned it before, operational leverage, like you do okay in good times and it looks really nice because you're buying something at four times earnings or whatever. But then um, when you lose like three years of those earnings in six months, it doesn't work so well. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I learned from that. Right. I actually, um, interestingly... I think I sold about two thirds of my position when um, kind of COVID started happening. And I could see the annualized losses just being enormous, like getting close to the market cap kind of thing. I was like, man, this is, I'm not going right. to hang on to this. Um, and they recovered a lot quicker than I ever anticipated. And me holding on to that little, like one third of my stake actually recouped a lot of those losses. So I think the permanent loss was like, because <laughs> um, they paid some special dividends and stuff as well. My permanent loss was like 15% mm. maybe, which in the grand scheme of things, I don't think is bad at all um not bad good yeah at my actually a mistake that's probably larger than that would be passing on uh, a stock i mentioned last time i was on this podcast which was corporate travel management that would have been my best investment ever but um mm. I was, I, oh I was hamish like, hamish is like, I, was like yeah, hamish, I told you yeah that. I told well, <laughs> well yeah I, I sort of i was look because i did i wasn't really familiar with the business beside i think Kerry and you guys talk about a short report maybe a few weeks before the chaos happened and um yeah. Yeah, I think it had, like, I, I know, Hamish, I think you said you bought it, like, you bottom ticked it, you know, just, mm. um, like, obviously, luck. bit of skill, bit of luck. We'll, we'll call it skill, Hamish. What a luck. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I think I, I was, like, I was studying it on that same day. Like, I was looking at it at $5 a share, might have dropped into the fours. And by the time I was on this podcast, it, like, two weeks later, it was 10, and I was, like, missed it. Now it's 20 or more, right? So that that's oh, probably the the biggest one um biggest mistake best investment um hopefully still to come i've been buying a little bit of alibaba recently so hopefully that will turn out to be the best one probably something like thor industries would be up there for me i'm just naming hamish stocks at the moment but uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that's probably including, including me now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i'm the shameless cloner of the shameless cloner so there you go <laughs> Uh, shameless cloner of the shameless cloner of the shameless cloner of the shameless absolutely. cloner. It's just a chain it's like, of clones. It's like how mm, people um, get nervous about interest rates when the Federal Reserve starts talking about having the meeting, about having the meeting, about having the meeting, about rising interest yeah. rates. So <laughs> yeah. um, well, We're thinking about thinking yeah, about exactly. rates. Is what they were <laughs> That's saying. what they said, isn't That's what it? They said. <laughs> it's ridiculous at this point. Mm. 
Yeah. Oh, very good. Oh, thanks for the insight, Tom. And yeah, hopefully best investments for all of us are still to come. Um, but I think we'll probably uh, we'll probably wrap it up around there. Thanks very much, Tom, for your time today. Thanks for coming on. We always like talking to you. It's always a, a really good – we always seem to go very in-depth when we when we talk with you and, and you always bring so much value and, and, and a lot of your insights uh, to the table. So we really appreciate having no, you on. I appreciate you guys inviting me on. Uh, I am an avid listener of the podcast myself so it's good to uh hey. good to make dreams come true and you know get a seat at the table <laughs> <laughs> and is this the second or third time we've had had you on the podcast i can't uh, even remember second i think yeah second, i say right. i think but, but i know it was there's the a lot second of, <laughs> there's, yeah, there's the counting? cross-pollination <laughs> i mean we've been on your podcast you've yes. been on it it's just we mm. do a lot of content you've been on my channel i've been it yeah so um all right. Well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for, for joining us. Where can people find you? You're on YouTube, Investing with Tom. You got your podcast. Yep. Um, I'll, I'll let you. No, that, you tell that was great. You're doing a little ad for me. <laughs> I've got, um, <laughs> I've got, uh, yeah, Investing with Tom on YouTube is the main channel. I also got a podcast by the same name, uh, the Investing with Tom podcast. I'm nowhere near as consistent as the Young Investors podcast, unfortunately, but I'm fairly consistent on, on YouTube. <laughs> um, I also actually have a second YouTube channel um, called Punch Card Investing, which is a, collaboration between myself and four other uh, YouTube sort of value investors and we do weekly live streams every Saturday my time here in New Zealand but depending where you are in the world uh, that may vary we actually have five different time zones with the five different people on that live stream so that's that's a bit gnarly but um, yeah if you ever want to come and ask me questions live or anything like that that would be the place to go nice awesome oh thank you very much Tom thanks for coming on it's good to talk to you my friend and thanks always Hamish for for joining us as well no worries Um, good to pick your brain and uh yeah thanks guys very much for tuning in to uh to the episode and uh with that said we'll wrap things up thanks always to ShareSite for sponsoring and we'll see you guys next week see ya